Welcome back to the program. Think about some of the great themes and conflicts of our time. Freedom versus tyranny, the 1% versus the 99%, East Coast values versus the Western ethos, team effort versus individual effort, the U.S. versus Russia, the triumph of the greatest generation, craftsmanship versus mass production, and the moral as well as physical victory of America in the Second World War. All of these themes and more are part of what Daniel James Brown weaves together in his best-selling The Boys in the Boat, reminding us that the story of Jesse Owens was not the only American triumph to emerge from the 1936 Olympics. The victory of The Boys in the Boat, the University of Washington crew team, would happen right under Hitler's watchful gaze. Daniel James Brown is the author of two previous nonfiction books. He was a finalist for the Barnes & Noble Discover Award for his book, Under a Flaming Sky. He's taught writing at San Jose State University in Stanford. And it is my pleasure to welcome Daniel James Brown here to talk about The Boys in the Boat, Nine Americans and Their Epic Quest for Gold at the 1936 Olympics. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Great to have you here. One of the fascinating parts of this story is, one, that it really has gone unknown for so long when it was such a relatively big deal at the time, and two, how the story came to you almost by accident. Talk a little about that. Yeah, well, in terms of, you know, why we didn't know about it before, I mean, the, the simple answer is simply that the reality is that Jesse Owens' story was so huge in August of 19. 19- 36, that you look at the newspapers from those couple of weeks, that it, it really eclipsed everything else that was happening in terms of the American consciousness of what was going on in Berlin. So I suspect there's a number of really great stories from the, from the 36 Olympics. Um, and um, this is just one more of them in, in some ways. The, the other thing about that is that um, the Jesse Owens story is a great story for a whole bunch of reasons, but one of them is it's a great individual achievement. And this is really a story of a great um, team achievement. And so I think, um, I think it bears, uh, I think it uh, stands up well when you, when you hold it up against Jesse Owens' story as, a, as another really fine story from that uh, game. I, I first learned about the story about six years ago. Uh, my neighbor, a lady I knew then only as Judy, came to me and she said that um, she'd been reading one of my earlier books to her father, and he was in the last couple months of his life living under hospice care at her home. He was enjoying that book, and she wondered if I'd come down to meet him. So I went down, uh, I think it was the next day, and I met this elderly gentleman named Joe Rance. And Joe was very weak. He was on oxygen, but he was very alert mentally. And we talked a little bit about that earlier book, but then Joe began to talk about his um, experience growing up during the Depression, and he had a particularly both heart-rending and heartwarming story about his family circumstances. He had uh, had a very difficult situation he had to overcome uh, as a young man right at the beginning of the Depression. And, and, and that actually became an important part of the, of the story. But then he went on and started talking about how he came to row on the crew at the University of Washington starting in the fall of 1933 and, and how he and these other eight working-class American kids had come together and, and formed these bonds and become this extraordinarily great rowing crew and how they had ultimately wound up rowing for this gold medal 
uh, in Berlin in 1936, rowing against a German boat, amongst others, in front of Hitler and Goebbels and Goering. And uh, it just was a mesmerizing story, and I, I fell into it right away. And one of the aspects, you, you touched on it a moment ago, is that these guys in the boat, Joseph Rance and the rest of them, were working-class kids. They were not only battling the Germans and what they represented at the time, but even the British and, and the sort of elitist image that rowing had. And, and it was yeah. unique for them to come from the background that they did to be engaged in this sport. Yeah, I mean, these were kids who, who grew up on dairy farms and in mining towns or mill towns around western Washington state. Uh, they grew strong wielding axes and, and pitchforks. Um, to get where they got, they had to uh, overcome, to vanquish, first kids who had learned to row in prep schools, kids who rowed for Ivy League schools in the East. And then they had to take on and, uh, and defeat um, kids who were considered the best rowers in the world, uh, kids from Oxford and Cambridge in, in England, of course, um, and then finally, uh, they had to take on this this literally hand-picked Nazi crew in, in Berlin. So uh, that's part of the appeal of the story to me and, and seems to be to, to the readers. Is, is it's, it's in many ways a classic American underdog story, and it reminds us, I think, a lot about what life was like for ordinary Americans um, during the Depression. And for all the work and all the practice and, and all that these kids put into this, there was the chance early on that the Olympics might be boycotted at the time, that it might never have happened. Yeah, there was a very substantial uh, chance, of course. I mean, the Jewish community, particularly in New York, was the one group of Americans who had some sense of what was really happening in Germany. Um, but... Um, that you know that view did not prevail. Avery Brundage, in particular, obstructed that view, and uh, and so the games went forward, um, regardless of what, uh, as I say, the Jewish community was convinced was happening. And you know, frankly, the propaganda, the the the, the games did turn into a very successful propaganda uh, endeavor for the, for the Nazis. They did a a very good job of deceiving America, excuse me, deceiving the world about what was happening in in Germany. Most Americans who went to the games that summer came back believing that Germany was a modern, clean, efficient, well-run, even progressive uh, nation. But of course, that was all an illusion, and it was a carefully contrived illusion meant to conceal what was really happening Dachau was already under construction in the summer of 1936. And not only were the Germans trying to put on a dramatic show for the world, they were trying to outdo what they had seen take place at the Los Angeles Olympics in 1932. Yes, absolutely. And you know, and and they probably did. I mean, the, the, the spectacle in Berlin was, was exactly that. It was, a, it was very spectacular, particularly by the standards uh, of the day. Um, and it sort of, I think, set in motion this uh, this thing we still have going, which is nations uh, trying to outdo each other in each successive uh, Olympics. But the the the, the Nazis uh, put an enormous amount of effort, an enormous amount of money into staging those games, and they really, frankly, just blew the world away. I mean, the people were enormously impressed by what by what they saw in in Berlin that summer. 
Two of the other central characters in this story, beyond the guys in the boat itself, were the designer and builder of the boat, George Pocock, and the coach of, of this team at the University of Washington. Right. And in some ways, they were like night and day. George Pocock, the, uh, the boat builder, was also something of a sage and a philosopher. He was a, a very gentle man. He was a very wise man. He advised, although his primary uh, business was building these beautiful cedar shells that they rode in, uh, he spent a lot of time, he was also a very, very good oarsman, and he spent a lot of time coaching these kids individually, not just on rowing, but sort of on life itself and, and how to learn to trust one another and, and put aside their egos in order to become part of something larger than themselves when they stepped into a boat. So on the one hand, they had the influence of, of this gentleman, George Pocock. On the other hand, they had their coach, Al Ulbrichsen, who was a very stern man and a very reticent man. He did not like to uh, display emotion. He was a very hard taskmaster. So uh, many of them were very afraid of him, frankly. But he also, uh, he was very good at what he did. And, and what he did was, was find the, the ultimate combination of kids, working, as I say, mostly with country kids from Washington State, putting together this sort of magical formula that makes a, a, a good crew into a great crew. And, and he found that actually, finally, in the spring of 1936, when he, he put Joe Rance in the number seven seat in that boat. And all of a sudden it took off. And if you look at his logbooks, you, you see this conspicuous change in the times that boat was turning in the moment he added that final man to the crew. And it wasn't that Joe was such a miraculous oarsman. It's just that he was the right oarsman uh, to complete that crew. So, he, so Albrechtson, although very stern, was also very, very bright. And, um, and he did what he did very well. There's also this sense of it being such a team effort. In fact, I think Rance says to you at some point that he's only willing to tell this story if you tell the story of the whole team. Yeah, the day I asked Joe to, you know, when I met him, I, I, I said, actually, I put it wrong way. I said, at the end of that conversation, I said, Joe, can I write a book about your life? And he immediately said no and shook his head and said, no, I don't want you to write a book about me. And he thought for a minute, he looked down, and I'll, I'll never forget this, he looked up with tears in his eyes, and he, and he said, but you could write a book about the boat. And by the boat, I was confused. At first, I thought he meant this beautiful feeder shell they'd rode in, but I, then I realized what he meant by the boat was um, not just the other boys in the boat, but this sort of almost perfect, beautiful thing that they had all become together together. Uh, back in that summer in 1936. So that, that just really inspired me. And I, and I set out the next day to write the book with, with that you know, foremost in my mind. I wanted this to be about what they had all done and become together. So it really, it really ultimately is a book about, about teens and about bonding and about trust and, and, and how those things work together. And tell us a little bit about gathering all this information because you really only had Rance and one other member of the team that was still alive. The rest had to be put together yeah, from source two, material. Yeah, there were only two, two guys still alive, Roger Morris and Joe, and within a year and a half, both of them were gone. I was very fortunate, um, first of all, in, in regards to Joe, who's sort of at the center of the book. His daughter, Judy, had spent um, 
well, the last 10 years or so of her dad's life, literally following him around with a pad of paper and a pencil in her hand, hmm. prodding him for memories about his growing up and his uh, experiences on the crew and, and the Olympics. And so even after Joe was gone, we just had an enormous amount of material to work with in terms of his story. And then when the family members of the other eight guys in the boat found out what I was up to, these families had been sitting on this story for 75 years just hoping somebody would tell it. So when they found out what I was up to, they started coming to me with boxes of letters and diaries and news clippings and photographs. And more importantly, they sat down with me for, oh gosh, hundreds of hours probably worth of the interviews uh, where they talked to me about in great detail about their their father or their grandfather, as the case might be. So it was only through the efforts of all nine families, really, that I was able to do this. And and, um, and it really was very much a collaborative effort in, in that way. What did you discover about the other guys in the boat and their backgrounds and their upbringing? Yeah, their, their, their backgrounds varied. Um, uh, most of them, as I say, were uh, from very humble origins. Most of them had some kind of rural background. Um, one of them was the doctor, I mean, the, the son of a doctor, but otherwise, uh, none of them really had two nickels to rub together. And so, you know, one of the fun things about writing a book like this is that you have to get to know uh, nine individuals uh, very, very well. And uh, one of the, you know, one of the pleasures was that along the way, as I talked to the families and I researched each of these guys separately, there were all kinds of little surprises about um, who they were. You, when you start something like this, you don't know for sure. They could have turned out to be nine jerks in a boat. You know, I didn't <laughs> know. I didn't know if these were going to turn out to be great guys or not, but in fact, they really did. They turned out to be nine extraordinary young men. So there were lots of little surprises about character along the way. How was this victory perceived at the time? As you talked about, certainly the Jesse Owens coverage was overwhelming, but this victory was pretty dramatic in and of itself in that it was a come-from-behind win, and it took place on a day that Hitler was there watching. Oh, it was extremely dramatic, and one of the reasons it it had as much impact as it did um, was that we forget, or in many cases like me, we didn't know, that in the 1920s and 1930s, rowing was enormously popular as a spectator sport, uh, both here and in in Europe. Um, Literally, millions of people would tune in uh, on radios, which was then a new medium, to to hear major races broadcast coast to coast. 100,000 people would turn out for one of these regattas. It rivaled college football for popularity uh, uh, in the mid-30s. So it was enormously uh, popular, and it, it it attracted a lot of attention. It's almost hard to imagine now. So when you know that that dramatic race unfolded in Berlin, as I say, to some extent, the story was swamped by the uh, Jesse Owens story, and unfortunately, there was a, there was a writers newspaper writers strike here in Seattle uh, that week. So the story actually didn't get printed in Seattle, where it was would have been of most interest. Um, but nevertheless. Uh, there were a lot of people watching, and it meant a lot to a lot of people. Because these guys were ordinary Americans, working-class Americans, a lot of people in the Depression 
could identify with them. They were just kids struggling, you know, to make enough money to stay in school and, and get ahead. And so they were representative of, of what a lot of Americans uh, felt. And, and I think that's part of the reason, even though the story was somewhat obscured, that it, it resonated then and, and it's resonating again today. Talk a little bit about Avery Brundage, who you mentioned before, who was head of the U.S. Olympic Committee, who was really one of the prime advocates for the Games, for going for the Americans going forward with the Games, and took a lot of heat for that, including one of the other things that happened during the game when, when Sam Stoller and Marty Glickman were pulled from a race. Yeah, you know, um, I grew up in the Bay Area, and uh, I remember going to the Avery Brundage collection in, uh, in Golden Gate Park, there it was then, and um, I always had, growing up, in a, a positive impression of him. But I have to say that in the course of writing this book, looking closely at what he did and what he stood for in relation to the um, attempted boycott, um, he either was or came very close to outright anti-Semitism mm-hmm. in his stances. Um, he, in part, he opposed the boycott implacably, of course. But it's not just that. It was some of the language that he used and, and some of the way that he dealt with some of the athletes. Um, I came away with a, uh, I'm sorry, a very unfavorable impression uh, of Avery Brundage at the, at the end of the day. He was a philanthropist later in life, and I'm, and I'm aware of that. But uh, that's my takeaway. What's interesting, and, and the reason I bring it up, because it was the success of, of the guys in the boat, and Jesse Owens, of course, and others like, like Jack Bresford, that, that really sort of saved Brundage's reputation in many respects. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. You know, I mean, the Olympics were a great propaganda success from the German point of view, but from the American point of view, we came away with some stories that really added to the American narrative. And uh, and those, of course, wouldn't have happened if the boycott had succeeded. So, you know, looking back at it, uh, it <laughs> I'm torn because I, I personally think that we should have been perceptive enough to understand what was happening in Berlin and should have listened to the Jewish community, particularly in New York, that was very vocal about it. But, of course, I'm torn somewhat because... Uh, these great stories came out of the game, too. So it's complex. What do we know in terms of the, the guys in the boat and how they understood or felt about the, these political aspects of the 36 Olympics? You know, the honest answer to that is that, like most Americans, um, they weren't paying much attention to the politics of what was going on in Germany. Uh, there's actually a fun article in the Washington Daily, which is a student newspaper for the University of Washington. There was an article that spring uh, that did a, a, apparently a poll that showed 98% of the students at University of Washington wanted nothing to do with getting involved in what was happening in in Europe. Americans just really didn't want to get involved in another war or in the politics of what they saw as the politics of Europe. So when these boys went to Berlin in 1936, like a lot of Americans, they saw a clean, well-run, efficient, apparently cultured, modern, even progressive state, because that's what the Nazis wanted them to see. And like most Americans, they came home from those games mostly favorably impressed. 
by what they saw. Now, all that changed, of course, within a few years. But the fact is the Nazis were very successful in Berlin uh, with, with, with the propaganda, and these guys were, uh, were no different in, in that sense. Did the guys feel that their fame or that their success was in some way overshadowed? Was that something that any of them lived with or dealt with over the years? You know, I don't think so. I tell you the truth, these were a really humble bunch of guys. These mm-hmm. are guys who, by and large, came home, put their gold medals in sock drawers, and went back out and tried to find a job for the rest of the summer so they could get through another year uh, of school. They weren't terribly into themselves. So um, I, I don't think that they felt, they felt that what they'd done was good. They were proud of it. And then they wanted to get on with the rest of their lives. So I don't think they felt overshadowed. I do think some of the family members later, you know, when they realized what their father or grandfather had done, as they say, they were very anxious to have the story told because they thought, as I thought when I first heard it, that it's really uh, an important part of the American narrative and it it really deserved to be told. But as individuals, (laughs) with one exception, I have to say Bobby Mock, the coxswain of the boat, did spend much of the rest of his life. He was a very outspoken, very bright guy. And he did spend uh, much of the rest of his life promoting this crew and, and trying to get it more widely recognized. How does the rowing world and the rowing community today, some of the people that you talk to to better understand this world, how did they view this event? You know, most of them uh, were unaware of the event, as most Americans were. And I have to tell you, I've just been personally so gratified by the response from the rowing community as the book has come out and become so so popular. This is a sport that people mostly do just for personal self-satisfaction. It's not a sport, particularly these days, where there's any money involved nor very much in the way of glory or publicity. People do it for the love of it. But as a result of that, um, rowers have felt for a long time, apparently, that their sport was really ignored uh, in the media and, and little understood. So I've had this enormous outpouring of support from rowers for telling the story so they learned about the history of their own sport, but also just for bringing rowing sort of back into America's consciousness a little bit. Uh, and that's been really gratifying. I didn't know anything about rowing when I started this, and I have to say I have become a fan of it. I mean, the book's about so much more than rowing, but, but rowing is sort of the foundation on which the story is told. And, and so it's really gratifying to see so many rowers excited about it. Daniel James Brown, the story is The Boys in the Boat, Nine Americans in the Epic Quest for Gold at the 1936 Olympics. Daniel, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 